before uh, I open up the Bible uh, with you here, let's pray before we come to the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Lord, would you help us tonight? We need your Holy Spirit to help us to see what is really here in your word. I pray for those here tonight that know you, that they would be encouraged and built up in their faith. Lord, for those of us who are struggling, may we see that your word has authority and power. And may you speak, Lord, to us tonight, we pray. We just want to reiterate the words of that song. And we are so dependent upon you now, Lord, to understand everything that you've written down here for our encouragement. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one thing as a, as a student of history and as a, an enthusiast of history that I've realized over the years is that time and time again, there are attempts to try and categorize big passages and large uh, parts of history. You have the Industrial Age or the Steam Age, and apparently, as this falls down, the age that we're in at the moment is the Information Age or the Digital Age. Uh, Each one of us, I'm sure, has in our pocket uh, access to the internet. And we can, in a second, go and find out information on absolutely anything that we want, absolutely immediately. And I was looking up some of the statistics on this, and apparently, currently, over 51% of the world's population have access to the internet. And, And therefore, they can learn like never before in history. That's amazing, I think. But actually, this this comes right down to to all of us here in this room tonight, and actually this church. I mean, if you think about it across history, we as Christians now have unprecedented access to teaching and scripture. We can search for a sermon online. We can read books by early church fathers all the way down to men like Martin Lloyd-Jones. Literally, no other Christians in history have had access to the thousands of years of teaching or the best books on the Bible or the best translations of the Bible than we have. Week in, week out, us here at CEC have been so privileged to hear faithful, considered, spirit-filled preaching and carefully crafted sermons designed to help us to know our Savior better. And that is an amazing, amazing thing. So what is it that keeps us ineffective then? What is it that keeps us unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus, as Peter puts it in this letter? Why do we see so little progress in our lives and in the lives of others that we want to know Jesus Christ for themselves? Why is it that given all of this information and all of this word of God that we have access to, why are we so unfruitful? Clearly, it can't be the amount of information we have. I mean, maybe it's the doubts that we have about what we're actually hearing. Maybe we're struggling to believe that everything that is laid down here is true. Maybe it's also that mere information isn't enough. You see, the Christians that Peter writes to in this, his final letter, had doubts They had doubts about what they'd heard as well. See, their culture and the people around them were telling them something different than what Peter was telling them. And it was unsettling them. And for them, just the mere access to information, just their access to the actual apostle Peter himself, wasn't enough either. 
So what we're going to learn here tonight from Peter is, is basically two things. We're going to learn that remembering the truth is important. And secondly, because it's reliably authoritative. Remembering the truth is important because it's reliably authoritative. And actually, Peter has two arguments for the second point. So let's delve into his first statement, the importance of remembering the truth. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 15 here. I wonder if you noticed as we were reading how absolutely adamant Peter is in this passage that the Christians remember something. In fact, if you look down at verses 12, 13, and 15, he's using this word with the, um, with the Greek root, remember. You see it there in those verses. But what is it that he's so passionate that these early Christians remember? He refers to it, actually, in, in verse 12 as the truth present with them. And this means that the truth that he's been talking about since the opening of his letter The truth about the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, who came to earth, was born by the Virgin Mary, died on a cross, and was raised from the dead. That is the truth that he's talking about. But the amount of times Peter uses this word remember tips us off that that his concern is actually how prone we are to forgetfulness. And actually there's another interesting turn of phrase related to this in the verse we're looking at. He says this, so I will remind you of these things, meaning the gospel, and the qualities that flow from living out the gospel. I will remind you of these things, even though you know them, even though you know them, and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. You see, Peter wants to remind the Christians of what they already know. So clearly, clearly the problem here isn't that these Christians are are lacking key pieces of the Christian message. It's not like they're sitting there with a puzzle with only the corners and they've got some bits that they have to fill in. No, you see, this is all about Peter reminding these Christians and us that there's a difference in the Christian life. There's a difference between being aware of a thing and living by it. There's a difference between being aware of a thing and living by it. Because just being aware that the gospel is a thing is not enough. We mustn't assume something is in our memory just because we're aware of it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher, was commenting on verse 12, and, and he put it this way. Sin will try to convince us that awareness does duty for practicing. But there is all the difference in the world between knowing what is good and doing it. See, that's why Peter tells us in verse 13 that we need to have our memories refreshed. Actually, the the Greek rendering of verse 13 is far stronger than what we've got here in our English. It actually means something like to get excited or to become energized or to come fully awake at something. Clearly, it goes so much further than just recalling the facts of the gospel here. Peter's actually saying, wake up, get excited. He's saying, there's a need here for personal revival. There's a need for us to experience what we believe. There's a need for us to experience our theology. And I can prove it to you. I can prove it to you with The Lion King. You see, in The Lion King, there's a a part in that story where Simba's father has been murdered by Scar. And Simba's run off into the wilderness. And he's walking around and he's living his life And he comes across his spiritual guide, Rafiki, who sends him off to go and meet 
the, the disembodied spirit of his father. And he goes through the, the jungle and he ends up meeting his father who appears to him sort of on the clouds. It's very kind of biblical imagery. And his father says, Simba, remember who you are. You have forgotten who you are. And that's actually the encounter that spurs Simba on to go and defeat Scar and claim the throne back for himself. Now, the problem there isn't that Simba forgot that he was a lion. The problem isn't that Simba didn't know he was the son of a king. Now, the problem was that that knowledge had lain dormant in him and actually wasn't having an effect on how he lived his life. Now, let me try and explain how that works in our daily experience as Christians, how we can be having our sort of Simba moments even right now. There's a man called um, Richard Lovelace, and he was a man who studied historical revivals. I guess revivals are what you could call communities of Christians waking up to the truth of the gospel and the reality of the gospel. And he made this, this really great observation. He said, while Christians know intellectually that their acceptance by God is the basis for their daily assurance, their actual day-to-day existence is spent drawing their assurance of salvation from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Let me put it simply. Our default position as human beings, every single one of us here in this room, me included, is to live as if the gospel isn't true. To live as if our acceptance before God isn't based on radical free grace, but instead of some kind of effort on our past, either present or past or in the future. And and not only that, if you think about the culture around us, our culture has so relegated faith and religious experience to, to the private sphere and just a private opinion that we're automatically inclined to keep it to ourselves. We're automatically inclined to keep our faith as something abstract and in our minds and not lived out and overflowing into our actual lived experience. So just like these Christians here, without being stirred up or shaken awake to remember these basic truths, we all fall into attitudes and patterns of behavior that match those of the unbelieving world around us. We look to the same things to ultimately satisfy us the same counterfeit gospels to justify us. See, we forget the love and the hope and the grace that we have in Jesus, so we try to steal it from other places, and we are ultimately led into dead ends. See, that's what Peter wants you and I here to avoid. He wants us to avoid those dead ends, which is why he reminds us that you and I never move past the need for coming awake to what we already know. Every single one of us needs to be reminded daily of the importance of the gospel. You see, Peter's talking about present truth coming home to the heart. He's talking about something that is present in your awareness, spilling over and flowing out into your life. He's not just talking about holding right doctrine, important though that is. He's talking about living right doctrine. Not so much that you and I would take hold of the truth but that it would take hold of us. Now, maybe you're here tonight and you've never had the gospel come home to you in its truest sense. Or maybe you're here tonight and you've been a Christian for years and you've fallen asleep to the full power of it. You see, either way, 
Peter is shaking you and I awake and calling us to fix not just our minds but our whole lives upon the truth of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel is not just a set of cold facts. Every single one of us knows this here tonight. It's not just a set of facts. It's the truth of an eternal and personal love that has sought both you and I out. That is what the gospel is. It's not just a set of doctrines. The doctrines are there to explain the love that God has shown for you and I. So we know that the problem is that we forget and the need is to remember. But you might be asking the question, well, that's all well and good, but how can we do that? How, how can we trust this gospel message? How can we trust what Peter's telling us here? And thankfully, the, the last two sections of our passage here, we're given two towering encouragements that help us to keep hold of this truth present with us here tonight. See, he reassures, reassures us firstly that the truth is eyewitness testimony. It's reliable because it's eyewitness testimony. And we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 18. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I love that verse. See the contrast that Peter's setting up for us here? Eyewitness testimony versus cleverly devised stories. And actually, the word that you'll find there is the Greek word for myths or fables. It's where we get our word for mythology from. Now, I remember growing up as a child, um, we were a family that read a lot. And my sister loved to read books on myths and legends. So we had stacks and stacks and stacks of Greek myths and Egyptian myths and Roman myths and Anglo-Saxon myths. And I, I spent most of my childhood not playing cricket, much to the chagrin of my mother, but actually reading about Beowulf and Odysseus and Achilles. And I loved those stories. They really captured my imagination. They were really exciting because who doesn't love a good story about monsters and, and the heroes that, that slay them? But that's all they were. They were just stories. They were exciting, but they didn't actually change the way I lived or, or they didn't speak into my life in any real meaningful way. And, and as I was reading about this, there's a 19th century psychologist named Carl Jung, and, and he studied myths for a long time. And he came to the conclusion that they were just the collected wisdom of mankind sort of distilled into fun stories that would teach you kind of a moral message or, or a way to live. They're clever stories, but they're just stories all the same. And actually, what this passage is telling us, and the very fact that Peter's saying, look, I wasn't telling you myths when I told you the gospel. The very fact that that is there shows us that there were, t there were people in Peter's time that had the same ideas as Carl Jung, the same ideas as we have here today. There was a group of thinkers in the first century called Epicureans. They were philosophers who, who scoffed at Greek myths. They thought they were, they were ridiculous. They, they treated them as these sort of childish fairy stories for people who couldn't face up to the reality and the hard knocks of life. And it's clear that in our passage, people were casting doubt on what the apostles were saying about Jesus as well. They were using this term myth to discredit what Peter was saying to the church. They were saying, well, you can't possibly believe that. These are fairy stories. They're made up. See, they reasoned that intelligent, reasonable people couldn't possibly believe stories that were designed for children. Stories that would fall apart the second you look at them, let alone examine them. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? 
Isn't that the message that we're fed by our culture? Aren't we constantly hearing that we can't possibly take the Bible literally? You can't possibly believe everything that's laid down in there because it's embarrassingly unscientific. It's culturally regressive. See, people who take the Bible as wholly true are often called narrow and restrictive and blinkered, deluded at best. See, the same cynicism that existed in Peter's time exists right here today. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The testimony of the apostles claims to be absolutely true. That's the one problem. The Bible doesn't set itself out to be a myth. It claims to be absolutely true. If you look at the writings of the apostle John, I could just read you the opening of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. In verse 2, the life appeared and we've seen it and we testify to it. Does that sound to you like John is writing a myth? Does it sound to you like he's trying to give you an inspiring story just to get you through life? No, he's talking about what he's seen and heard. And not only that, but if you've ever read the Gospels, they don't read like myths. You see, in the ancient world, nobody added in minor details to their stories. If you read the myths of Odysseus, you don't see him looking up and noticing the color of the sky. If you read Beowulf, you don't read about him having breakfast or blowing his nose. In ancient myths, there are no minor details. Actually, that's a modern thing that fiction writers do to try and add an air of realism to the story. If you read Harry Potter, we all know that Harry Potter is fiction, I hope. But when you read it, you realize that there there are little details peppered throughout the story to add a bit of realism to it. But that kind of writing was completely unknown in the first century. It just didn't happen. It didn't happen at all. But in the Gospels, you read about Jesus bending down and doodling in the dust, and you never figure out what it is he was writing. Or you read about the fact that Peter was 100 yards out in the water when he jumped in to swim to the risen Christ. Or you read about the fact that they caught 153 fish exactly. You see, those kinds of details didn't exist in ancient myths. So the only explanation is that they actually happened. Those things are there because they actually happened. And the people that saw them had remembered even the insignificant details. Now, we all know C.S. Lewis. He's a popular guy. But he was a world-class literature professor. And he said this about myths. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths my whole life. I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text... There are only two possible views. Either this is personal reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. It's not likely. The only likely explanation is that the things actually happened, that it's eyewitness testimony and I want to equip you with that tonight so that when you go out into the world and people say to you isn't it just a myth you can confidently tell them no it's eyewitness testimony it actually happened but these arguments aside there is one thing in particular that Peter witnessed that he calls to mind in verses 17 and 18 it's the transfiguration he chooses this one event to single out 
in the whole of his experience with Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection, this is the thing that Peter chooses to talk about. See, this part of Jesus' life is actually recorded in three out of the four Gospels, and they're almost exactly the same. This event, this transfiguration, was a big deal. See, what Peter saw there was burned into his heart and soul for the rest of his life. Because that was the place where he got the clearest glimpse he ever had of the full majesty and glory and identity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, that's actually why Peter's using the word majesty and honor and glory so much in this little section. It had just been so impressed upon him. He was never the same after that. And and it's not just what he witnessed with his eyes. But if you look down, it's also what he heard with his ears that he particularly remembered. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You see, what Peter is remembering here, that he actually saw with his own two eyes, was a unique moment in history, where three ordinary men were allowed a a peek behind the curtain to absolute reality. And what they saw changed their lives forever. Now, Take that image of the, of the Son of God in, in his full glory shining in front of you and then think how astounding it must have been for Peter to see this Son of God crucified and rejected and spat upon and laid in a tomb. Imagine how that must have been for him to realize that. That changed his life. He saw the transcendent glory of Jesus And yet he saw that beloved son, whom the father loved, crucified for him. And he saw how low Jesus was willing to go to save us. That changed his life. So let me ask you the fundamental question that this passage begs. Do you believe him? Do you really believe that Peter is telling the truth? Or is he just making up a story? Is he a liar? Because if he isn't lying, then we need to take him seriously. And if he isn't lying, does that truth about Jesus cause you to come alive? Does it cause you to come awake inside? Does it it open your eyes to the truth of how things really are? Does it do that for you? Or are you still acting like it's a fable? Are you still living your life like it isn't really true? I wonder, because it also begs the question, what is your standard of truth? How are you measuring what is true and what isn't? See, nowadays, I think everybody knows there's been this shift where we're radically suspicious of authority. We're radically suspicious of anyone coming along and saying, well, actually, this is the way things are. And we actually think that we ourselves are the best authorities out there. Everyone's an instant expert on anything, probably because we have access to the internet, and you just need to go to a message board to realize how many experts there are out there. We all think that we are the authority. And I think there's a reason that people and churches that treat the gospel accounts as more myth than fact are empty of the power and the grace and the love that Peter's talking about here. Because they have no real relationship with Jesus. Because they've eliminated the things that they find difficult. They've eliminated the things that their culture tells them are impossible and that challenge their worldview. But if when it comes to the gospel, your source of authority isn't this eyewitness testimony, but your own opinion, 
or the opinion of your culture, you won't have the real Jesus at all. So taking the testimony about Jesus as literally true, by the way, isn't the enemy of a living relationship with Jesus. It's the precondition for a living relationship with Jesus. Knowing that it's actually true. Knowing that it has authority over you. Because simply put, what Peter is saying here about Jesus and what you read in the gospel accounts is actually true. They really happened. And if they really happened, that changes everything. Have you come to terms with that? So we've, we've seen that what the apostles say about Jesus is reliable because it's authoritative eyewitness testimony. But if that isn't enough for you, Peter gives us one last argument. He tells us that what the Bible says about Jesus is reliable because of its very nature, because it is inspired by God himself. And here's where we'll finish. We're going to look at verses 19 to 21, the authoritative scriptures. See, just as Peter's told us the accounts of Jesus aren't myths, he goes on to tell us that the prophecies concerning Jesus in the Bible are not just people's opinions. See, what Peter calls the the prophetic message in verse 19 is actually a, a shorthand for the whole at what at the time was called the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. It's also Peter's way of saying that the scope of the entire Bible was heading in one direction. It was a single message concerning Jesus. That's a radical claim, by the way, because a lot of people think that the Bible is basically about them. They think that the Bible is a collection of scattered stories to try and teach them how to live a more moral life or to get closer to God, to get a little more religion into their life or or to make the world a better place. People think the Bible is basically about them. That it's basically like the myths that we talked about earlier. Inspiring stories, but nothing more than that. But the claim that Peter's making here, and, and the claim that the New Testament makes about itself, is that the Bible isn't mainly about us. It's actually about Jesus. It's one unified story heading towards the birth the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the second coming of Christ. And actually, the the phrase that Peter uses to describe the Bible heading in the direction of Jesus is in verse 21, driven along. See, this tells us that the Bible has not just one ultimate direction, but one ultimate author directing the story, God the Holy Spirit. And as I was studying this this week, there is so much that I could say about this verse, and I don't have the time. But one of the most important insights that Peter gives us here is what's historically been called the doctrine of inspiration. And we're actually given this helpful picture to understand what Peter means by this. See, this phrase of of being carried along or driven along by the Holy Spirit is actually used in, in another place of the Bible. It's used in Acts 27, where the apostle Paul is on a ship And all the sailors are working to try and get the ship working. And it's being driven along. The sail is up and it's being driven along by the winds and the storm. See, the men on deck are still working, but it's the wind in the sails that ultimately drives the ship, yet without overriding the work and the agency of the sailors. See, the sailors don't control when the wind comes. The sailors don't control where the wind blows, but they're still working to direct the ship. See, I think that's a very good picture 
of how the Holy Spirit inspired what you have here in front of you tonight. The Holy Spirit so drove along and seized and captivated the hearts and minds of the writers of the Bible that what they wrote about was infallible. That what they wrote about was without error and without a doubt the very words of God himself. So, so these Old Testament prophets were, were taken hold of by the Spirit of God and given a message to deliver. And that's why Peter tells us in verse 20 that no prophecy comes about out of the prophet's own mind. It didn't originate with them. They weren't men of opinion. They were men of conviction. That's why over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you don't hear prophets saying, listen guys, this is just my opinion. Or, I think we should do this. No, no, you hear, thus saith the Lord. Or you hear, the burden of the Lord. Or you hear, the word of the Lord came to such and such a prophet. You see, There were even some prophets who were extremely reluctant to give the messages that they were given, which just goes to show that it wasn't their own opinion. If you just read about Moses, or if you just read about Elijah, or if you just read about Jeremiah, they were all reluctant at some point in their ministry to actually do what God was calling them to do and say what God was calling them to say. It wasn't their opinion. It wasn't their own will. Now, let me tell you why this is important. If the prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament are not just human opinion, then what you have in front of you, what you are holding in your lap, is of vital importance. Because what you hold in your hand is the only account of God that humanity has access to. Outside of this, there is nothing else. There is nothing that you can truly know about God except from what is in this book. Now, you and I could take a walk outside and we could look at the trees, and we could look at the sky, and we could reason with each other that maybe there is a God. And maybe he's powerful because he made all things. And maybe he's supremely creative because there's so much diversity in creation. But I guarantee you, we will never come to the conclusion that he is a loving heavenly father. That he has a son. And that he sent this son to die to redeem you and I from a gap that we couldn't possibly fill with our own efforts. You will never come to that conclusion so how can we look at the story of the bible in that way and then treat it as a set of mere opinions how can we stand in judgment over it how can we ignore it we shouldn't but finally i want to say what all this means and if you take nothing away tonight this is what i want you to take away you can trust the bible When you come to a promise in the Bible, you can trust it. When it tells you that there is a God who made all things, you can trust it. When you're at the end of your hope and you're looking for encouragement and you're looking for a sign that God really does love you, you can trust it. When the Bible tells you that Jesus is coming back again, you can trust it. When it tells you that he died for you and that he has redeemed you completely and that God can't love you any more or any less, you can trust it. When it tells you that through his spirit he will be be with you for the rest of your life and through your death and into eternity. And by the way, he's coming back to restore all things. And so that we might be with him for eternity, you can trust it. See, one of the things that has really inspired me recently is thinking about what's going on in the Philippines with the translation of the New Testament and the Old Testament. That when a Taobuid Christian in those tribal villages opens the Bible in front of them, they have the very words of God and they can trust it. 
so we can trust the Bible as well. And Peter would have you and me remember this. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel of Jesus. Remember it because it's based on reliable, authoritative, eyewitness testimony from people who were really there. And remember it because the Bible is the trustworthy, spirit-inspired, driven-along, unified story of God concerning his Son. May it come home to you and me more deeply, more profoundly, and more permanently than it ever has before. Let's pray. Lord, we would need a lifetime to unpack what we've heard about your word tonight. But Lord, I'm filled with thankfulness that we have it in front of us. Lord, help us to love it more. Help us to stand under its authority more. Lord, help us to resist the press of our culture around us and to believe it as literally, fully, and gloriously true. Lord, may we live as people who remember the truth. And Lord, we would long for a revival to break out in our own hearts concerning this word and a revival to break out in Chessington and across our nation concerning this word. Lord, would you make us in this church men and women of the word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.